Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. I'm Christina Suzama, and with me today is our brilliant co-host, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, hello Christina. Glenn. Hello, hello. Aloha to you. Aloha. <laughs> welcome back to the mainland. Thank you. I still feel like I'm on Pele right now, Pele Energy. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to welcome all of our guests to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Woolman. And I'll be your medical guide today as we travel through the healthcare galaxy looking for ways toward optimal health. So how was your week, Christina? Wonderful, wonderful to be um, all amongst the indigenous talk stories and medicine and way of life is uh, pretty spectacular, Glenn. I mean, it was truly a, a, a working, what I call a working vacation, but... You know, when you're sort of woven into that aloha spirit, as they call it, it's it's pretty magnificent. Um, you know, when, when they speak about the healing energies and the healing tools that they're using and the vortexes that they walk through, it's, ah, I can't wait to delve into that with you. <laughs> yeah. What's happening on Trinity? On Trinity, um, yes, well, we have been able to uh, take on a few wonderful interviews with uh, some uh, of Kapunas, of course, uh, one on midwifery of uh, birthing, you know, on the, into the physical presence, of course, birthing children, and the midwifery of helping people birth into the next part of their journey. So I thought that was a, a very interesting term that they've been using recently. It's the midwifery of uh, supporting and assisting people, whether it be in health, like what you do, or in, um, in just uh, their spiritual journeys. So did you know that you were a midwife? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yes, I've, I've actually delivered many babies. And there you know you what go. was very interesting? I found that in all the years of deliveries and everywhere that I've gone, no one ever sang happy birthday during the delivery. So I started doing that at one point. Oh, I that's thought it would fun. be the first time and the right time to do that. Oh, that's fun. Happy yeah, it's birthday. kind of interesting. Yes, because in, in the Chinese culture, the first day that you're born is your birthday, is your first birthday. So that's, uh, that's good. I like that. Yeah, it was very nice. You know, interestingly, uh, today uh, we have a very special guest. I, I worked in a hospital in an emergency department. As you know, most doctors uh, have their own office, and then they use a hospital. They get on staff at a hospital, and they either take care of an ill patient. And when they do that, they're in the hospital for that time period. But there are other doctors that are in the hospital all the time, like emergency doctors, radiologists, anesthesiologists, pathologists. Most of them are hospital-based. And when you're in a hospital, you start to realize that a hospital is just like a city. There are, there are various people doing many types of jobs in there, doctors, nurses, technologists, uh, housekeeping, cafeteria and food service, pharmaceuticals, uh, engineering, uh, so many things. And what, what I realized is that the administrator of the hospital is really like the mayor of a small city. Hmm. And 
as the mayor, they have many jobs to do. Most of the time, we don't get to speak to mayors. And I thought in our uh, programming, where we're usually speaking with healers, that it might be very interesting to do something different, which I never see, is to actually get the opportunity to speak to a hospital administrator. And my very special guest today is Jim Raggio. I've known him for many, many years, and he is the CEO of the Lompoc Valley Community Hospital in California here. So I would like to introduce you to him right now, Christina. Jim, Thank you. welcome. Thank you, Glenn. Christina. Hello, Jim. Welcome to the show. Well, thanks very much for having me. So, Jim, uh, what I what I like to do as a medical guide is give our viewing audience. By the way, I, I think it's a better uh, description of me, not as a mayor, but as a f chief of the fire department. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to get into that. Uh, and you could be right. You, you have so many roles and you're dealing with so many people. That's what I want to talk about. But I, I'll accept the chief of the fire department. But I think there's right. so much more. Not that I don't love fire department chiefs. I do. But I'm going to talk to you a little personally for a while and let people know how you got into the healing uh, business or art or profession. And then... I'm going to start asking you some medical questions that have to do with, you know, kind of hospital administration. And then we'll get, get into maybe some of the nitty-gritty of what people think about hospitals and, and what you want to tell people. So the first thing I'd like to do is give you the opportunity to tell our audience how you got into health and health care and what took you to the role of a hospital administrator. Um, be happy to. Uh, actually, uh, my father was a general surgeon in San Francisco, um, was someone that <clears throat> actually traditional physician was in a coat and a tie seven days a week doing rounding on his patients. Um, interestingly enough, none of the kids ever wanted to get into medicine because that's what we knew a physician's lifestyle was. I entered uh, college, uh, thought I'd get into engineering. Um, my first semester in engineering, I was uh, asked to design a parking lot to see how many um, cars could go in this parking lot. And, you know, I, I remember going back to my dorm room saying, you know, I just don't care. I don't like this. Um, I'm not going to spend my life doing this. And I just went into biology as a major, not knowing what I was going to um, end up doing. But... Uh, Eventually, after I graduated with my degree in biology, I was actually thinking about, or uh, actually in the application process for a doctorate in biochemistry, hmm. and decided that I was working in a lab at that time, and one of the individuals I was working with asked me um, if I would be interested in uh, entering the uh, clinical science program, the cl clinical laboratory scientist program at Children's Hospital in LA, which I applied for, got in, and, and I'm a licensed clinical laboratory scientist, which was my entry into the healthcare profession. Which is where we met. That's where we met. And interestingly enough, the, the very reasons why I never went into medicine was watching my dad uh, work got awful hours. Um, <laughs> one of the first weeks I was in Lompoc, I was, uh, it was just one of those days as I was managing the laboratory. Um, 
they someone called in sick. We shut the lab down at six o'clock. We were on call, or I was on call, and I ended up uh, working like thirty hours straight in the, the laboratory. And I, I <laughs> at that point, uh, I was just shaking my head when I went home to get to bed. But it was a good learning experience. I kind of realized a little bit. I had a, a flavor for what the physicians went through. Um, the reason, and I thoroughly enjoyed laboratories. Still do. Um, I like feeling like I'm doing something to help uh, individuals. Uh, I've always I always went home feeling uh, I participated in my own little way to making things better. Uh, I, I don't think I ever would have enjoyed or appreciated that or felt like that if I was in an engineering uh, career. So uh, thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed the healthcare profession. Um, I really did not aspire to be a CEO of a, a healthcare district or a hospital, but uh, one thing led to another and uh, went from the lab to a director of clinical sciences, which was uh, six clinical departments reported to me. And then uh, the board asked me to um, consider this position as a CEO in 1998, and um, I did. Yeah, that's a great story. And I actually, to, to be clear, I got to be a little bit of a part of that. So that was very much fun for me to watch you go through that transition, knowing uh, from my point of view, how good you were in the lab and clinical sciences that I knew that that would just be transposed into being the CEO. So I was very happy well, about we that. Both, we, yeah, and we both we both made a huge impact on this small community rural hospital. Uh, <laughs> I mean, just as we flash back on that time when they were trying to redesign the emergency department and they had no place for physicians, uh, those kinds of decisions being made in a hallway, uh, you know, Vacating my office so physicians in the ER could actually uh, have a place to sleep during their remodel uh, was critical. And it was just fun to be to working with someone like yourself to make that happen fairly benignly. Yeah. Yeah, we did. We did some nice things. Um, I want to talk about the hospital in general and the hospital and a community for a, a few moments. You You work with a lot of different groups, as you said before. I mean, you have to deal with doctors and their egos. You have to deal with nurses, uh, the public, the community. You have to deal with legislators in uh, California, other hospital administrators. All of these things, you have to balance plates and keep everyone happy and get things moving. Who's the most fun to work with? The most fun. Um. <laughs> there was a moment of silence. <laughs> Environmental <laughs> services staff. <laughs> um, you know, I don't. I don't know if there is a group that I would um, pick out. I think that part of what my role is is to get everyone to appreciate the different uh, talent that everyone else brings to the table to make this organization work. Um, so many times with physicians and our IT staff, environmental services staff, uh, engineering, all of these various departments, uh, we have, we're very fortunate at Lompoc to have some very, very talented people. Um, and 
sometimes, for example, finance, they can be somewhat uh, anal retentive and, you know, nitpicky uh, to the other people. But uh, I always try to make them understand that the reason why I have the ability to purchase a $300,000 piece of equipment is because that person that you think may be somewhat critical of uh, the way the purchase orders are done or whatever results in us having a finance department that I trust. And in order for me to trust the numbers that they're providing to me allows me to allocate resources, $300,000 for a new x-ray machine. So eventually I think it's just um, being able to facilitate and make sure everybody appreciates what everybody else brings to the table. And we're very fortunate to have a lot of talented people. And the physicians too. I mean, the physicians are, are under a lot of pressure. Um, they they work in somewhat of a silo. They're educated and trained to make decisions, not so much in a collaborative way, because they, they really, at, at various periods of time, can't do that. And uh, getting them to understand that the, the bigger picture of the healthcare delivery system, we need to little pause a little bit and appreciate everything else that's going around, uh, not just focused on one little small issue that we're looking at. Mm. And, you know, all of these issues, I think, go, go with everyone that I deal with throughout the day. So let me see if I can summarize. ER doctors are the most fun to work with. Is that what you said? They're a component, yes, with everyone else. <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. I want to talk about how the hospital itself is a community, but it lives within a community also. What does a hospital offer a community? Well, just so people understand, Lompoc is, uh, we're about an hour from Santa Barbara in a rural area. We're designated as a rural healthcare facility by the federal government. The state considers us urban. Um, but we have about a 60,000, 65,000 population, and the nearest hospital to us is 35 miles away. Mm. Whatever happens to the healthcare delivery system in this country, there's no way that a community of 65,000 that's 35 miles away from another hospital will be without a hospital. Mm. And so part of what we're doing is trying to strategically position ourselves to maintain viable and an ever-changing environment. Um, the community is a huge part of our, our hospital because we are considered a healthcare district um, and a we're a political subdivision of the state of California. We operate very much like a school district. And so we have an elected board um, by the community, and anyone that lives in Lompoc Healthcare District can actually vote for the five board members that I report to. Uh, I think this is one of the best models of healthcare delivery system because there are no um, other alternatives or motives. There's no corporate stockholders that we have to listen, to, excuse me, listen to or. Uh, deal with it just basically we're here to do what's best for our community we we have the ability to get community input um, one of the things that we're recently doing is we've had an individual that uh, presented to the board of directors um, that was unfortunately going through some radiation uh, treatments she was concerned that the closest radiation center was 35 miles away and so we started and embarked on developing a radiation center here in the community just to respond to those needs. Mm. Um, so nice. We've been very, very fortunate 
uh, and I, I think this is really a model delivery system because really we're partnering with everyone, the community. We also, when the state um, passed Senate Bill 1953, which was the seismic um, requirement that all hospitals in the state of California comply with, uh, we have the ability as a political subdivision of the state of California to go to the community and um, ask for a property tax assessment to fund the construction of a brand new hospital, which we did. Mm. And with that, uh, we are very proud of the fact that when the bond measure uh, went to the voters, it passed with 87% voter approval, which wow. today is still a state record. Um, and that's just, I think, a function of the community respecting us, knowing that what we're here to do is provide the healthcare needs of our community. They know we have a uh, very dedicated group of people here, very talented. And it showed in that that support. Mm -hmm. mm, good answer. Uh, it also, I remember when I was there, we put on a career day for a lot of children in the, the community. We had all the heads of the different departments come in and meet with the kids and talk to them about their futures. So that another thing the hospital offers is a community, especially in these times when we're looking at the economy and uh, jobs, jobs, jobs. There are lots of things that are done like that in a community, mm -hmm. at a yeah, hospital. We, you said we happen. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, we happen to be the second largest employer in the entire uh, city. Oh. Should I ask the some, first? Uh, I think the school district is. Okay. Well, I, so you know, you mentioned house. that you think that this is a good model for a hospital. Yeah. You, you meet with hospital administrators around the country, don't you? Do you talk about things like this? What do you communicate? And when they talk to you about this model, do a lot of them see that as something good or versus, say, a Kaiser model or other, other programs? How does it work when you're with the other administrators? Um, you know, as it's really the, the takeaway from me, and I do speak with quite a few. I'm on a number of boards, and I, I travel quite a bit up to Sacramento. Um, and I do have an opportunity to speak to a number of my colleagues throughout the state. Um, the healthcare district is a good model in a community like ours. Uh, Kaiser is a good model. Uh, and, you know, what, what I've always been amazed at in trying to come up with a national healthcare delivery system is that healthcare is so regional and so local that it's very difficult to put a single solution throughout this country because mm -hmm. my situation in Lompoc is so different than what's in Santa Barbara uh, or San Francisco Bay Area where Kaiser is predominant and uh, they do a good job, but the, the environment is completely different. And then you take the Mendocino Coast. There's Mendocino Coast Healthcare District. They're out there at Critical Access Hospital out on the coast uh, extremely isolated hmm. and providing care to the residents in those Crescent City and those areas. You know, our environments are so different that mm -hmm. I, I think it's going to be very difficult to have a one-fit-all solution to whatever healthcare evolves into. Uh, I think in Lompoc and in our community and in our area, a healthcare district is the best model. Kaiser would never come into a community this small. And so part of the problems uh, that we have as a rural area is the foundation model, which is what Kaiser is. Uh, we don't have the subspecialty physician in our area to support a foundation model. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, 
So it's it's an interesting. So the takeaway, Glenn, really, is that our environments are so different. I always come back and say, well, you know, I'm pretty blessed to be in this area because I don't have half of the problems those other individuals have in their community. Um, I have a question, Jim. Um, if I were ever to live around your area, that's uh, one hospital in a 35-mile radius. Is that right? Yes. How? Uh, what is the main form of transportation in, a, in an emergency? Normally what happens is people will present to our emergency department, and if we do not have the services that are needed, we transport them down uh, Right now, our mm -hmm. primary uh, referral hospital is Cottage Health Systems, and so we have relationships with Cottage and the ambulance services that we will transport patients down there. And it usually takes about, you know, 50 minutes to get to Cottage. So, so by ambulance? Yes. And what if I need to get to you <laughs> in an emergency? Well, there's ambulance, there's ambulance services here in Lompoc. The fortunate thing is... Um, you know, in a small community, uh, one, of the, one of the critical things, and Glenn can speak to this better than I can, but the most important thing of saving someone's life is getting them to a hospital quickly. Mm -hmm. And in Lompoc, um, you can get to this hospital in five minutes from anywhere in the community. Um, wow. And, and that's, that's really a, an added advantage that we have. Mm -hmm. I remember growing up in San Francisco, you know, you're, you're hearing the ambulances all the time and good luck with the traffic the congestion yes. um, you, you can't get to a hospital in five minutes right. and um, you know if you have a GI bleed for example and you're bleeding out um, you know you need to get to a hospital quickly and that that's the advantage of living in a small community because we do have ambulances that transport people to and from our facility that that are at their station mm -hmm. in our community and that's one of the things I think Glenn was instrumental in in improving that service because it was pretty much a uh, mom and pop thing back in the 1980s. And uh, we uh, orchestrated getting AMR here, or Glenn did, I think, with our ER group uh, to improve those services. And it's been uh, extremely successful. So I, to tell you the truth, I think the stand, from a standard of care, I think we're in much better shape dealing with getting a person to a hospital like ours quickly than you are in a large urban mm -hmm. area. Mm -hmm. Even Santa Barbara, to be quite honest with you. Mm -hmm. yeah, What's the, go ahead, Doug. Yeah, I'll continue. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, that would, be, that would be my most concern when, you know, in, in any of these smaller uh, areas, you know, and, and you're absolutely right. Here in Los Angeles, to get from, to, to and from a hospital, even though they're they're maybe four miles away from me. It would take me 15 minutes. <laughs> and if there's traffic, it would take me 40 minutes to 45 well, minutes. Our, our first child was born when I was completing down in Los Angeles, and I was completing my internship in clinical science at Children's. <clears throat> Excuse me. And, uh, you know, it took us 25 minutes to get to the, uh, the hospital where our son was born. <laughs> and that, but that was just accepted. I mean, that, that's what happened. You planned for it. But in Lompoc, you, you know, we can, I'm a half a mile uh, from the hospital. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> so have more kids. <laughs> yeah. No, that, that train left the station. <laughs> <laughs> but now he's right in the hospital. It's too easy now. <laughs> yeah, 
if only he could give birth. Right, right. Well, actually, I got in trouble with my wife when uh, she was delivered our, our third child here in Lompoc. And, uh, you know, she's going through the, the delivery. And by this time, it was old hat. So I just went back to work. And <laughs> I, ended up getting to, I ended up getting to staff page to please go to OB. So I ran down there and uh, watched our daughter being born. But, uh, I'm still living that one down. <laughs> Oh, my. Jim, what's the most gratifying part of being an administrator? You know, I think making a difference in this community. Um, you know, my time on this planet, I think I've made a difference, a positive difference. And, um, you know, we've built a hospital for a community that's going to last for 60, 70 years. <clears throat> um you know, made a lot of positive changes. And I think we've, uh, over the past number of years, actually have, have really focused on providing quality care. And um, I think we've, you know, I've been fortunate to be part of that. And I just find it very, very, uh, I'm proud to be involved in it and um, very happy that, uh, and satisfied, really, in, on my career choice. What's the most frustrating part? Um, I think people that, you know, physicians and some staff that really can't see the larger picture where you almost see them walking to a cliff and are about ready to fall off. And, uh, you know, I think physician integration, physicians, uh, where the delivery system is right now, physicians and hospitals need to integrate. Um, and, and that's coming from pressure from the federal government. I think really some of the, um, and state government, the thing that causes all of these frustrations is that, you know, our government, whether it's the state or the federal government, find it a lot easier to decrease reimbursement to hospitals and physicians than it is to deal with wholesale changes to the delivery system, which are very difficult to uh, come up with. And, um, and as a result, we're in this constant battle of, you know, cut, 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 because they just don't want to deal with some of the more difficult issues. You know, the end of life issues, uh, the amount of money that's spent on the end of life. Uh, you know, our our government has a very difficult time dealing with that. Um, it's horribly expensive, and there should be some objective criteria on. Uh, you know, do you put a liver in a 90-year-old individual? Um, mm -hmm you know, the cost associated with that. But those are very difficult decisions for anyone to make. And I think that, that that's kind of problematic. Um, and so the pressures put on from state and federal government are resulting in us having to uh, really take a look at the efficiencies of the operation. And that impacts physicians in what they can or cannot do. Mm -hmm. We have physicians here that, uh, you know, there's a federal mandate on this electronic health record. Um, Nobody argues the point of having records electronic. Unfortunately, trying to put that in place in a small rural community where some doctors don't use computers. And you've got other ones that are right out of a residency that are waiting for the computer. So trying to facilitate all that gets, gets very frustrating. I got a, an email from uh, someone watching the show who wants to know, maybe this would be kind of a simple question that, segues right into what you were just speaking about. The question was, with insurance companies, I'm going to read this, with insurance companies demanding 
more from doctors in areas and time, which sometimes translates maybe into eliminating some medical steps or patient uh, things a patient might need. Hospitals are plagued by cost uh, and relief for payment. What can hospitals do, if anything, to assist doctors and nurses in their work based on insurance processes? Um, I, th I think understand the, 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 the hospitals are best suited to actually navigate through this, you know, cesspool of regulations. A lot of the times the physicians don't have the time or the energy to actually learn those, and it's always a, a reactive uh, posture they have with some regulation coming out. Hospitals, I think, because of the staffing ability and uh, our need, we, we stay focused on changes in rules, regulations, um, and that's where a hospital, I think, can, can help. I've never really been in a situation where um, I have ever experienced someone not doing the best for a patient. Fortunately, I think in all my career here, I've never seen a physician not do something because of the costs. Um, we have never told the physician not to do something that is necessary because of the costs. Um, and I, I really don't think as a... Um, as a country, we want that to happen. So I, I've never really dealing with getting reimbursed is after the fact. We need to be taking care of the patient the best of our means and then dealing with the reimbursement later. And I'll give you just one example. We had an individual that came into our emergency department with aplastic anemia. Their bone marrow shut down. They got admitted to our hospital. They had no insurance. Um, and we, we took care of them. We transfused $50,000 of blood products. Um, the individual's bone marrow kicked in and started making all these blood cells. Uh, the patient was discharged probably seven days after they were admitted and um, with no insurance. And, you know, at some point, a small... Now, two weeks after this patient was discharged, I get a bill from the local blood bank to pay them the $50,000 for the blood products that we used on this patient. Mm. And no one in this country thinks that we should ever or would ever want anybody to turn that patient away. The issue of getting reimbursed for services that we provide is a, is a national issue. I just personally don't think that in that situation, a small rural hospital should have to absorb that loss, which we do now. Um, and and uh, that, that's more of a national problem that needs to be addressed or uh, and, and that, that's just part of how dysfunctional the payment system is right now in the country. But there's no one that's going to allow uh, someone with chest pain or aplastic anemia or any disease state not to be taken care of in this country. And they do get care. The issue is a reimbursement. And so we're always really focusing on how can we maximize a reimbursement. And then we are in collaborative discussions with the doctors now to sit there and say, okay, if you call up a physician for a consult on a patient, um, you know, that increases the acuity of this patient's stay. So you're going to get paid more if you just document that. Historically, physicians have just never done that. Mm. And so there's a learning process that needs to go on there. 
So, I mean, to answer your question, I think that as payments go down, the hospital is best suited to educate nurses and doctors and facilitate an efficient way of dealing with anyone that comes into the hospital and get reimbursed for those. Mm-hmm. Very good answer. Do you, you, you talk about regulations coming down from states and locals and federals. Does anything go in the other direction? Do hospital administrators, can they affect change for the better of, of delivering health care? Is there any chance of doing that, or is it always going to be a, a downward uh, flow only? No, I, I think that, um, you know, there's 474 hospitals in the state of California. Now, those, those are all kind of spread out into different delivery systems. You know, you have uh, healthcare districts like Lompoc. You've got county hospitals. Um, and then you've got UC, uh, the public uh, hospitals, the designated public hospitals, uh, the private hospitals, and the for-profit, not-for-profit hospitals. You have all of those groups that, through our association, the California Hospital Association, get together to try and drive some reasonableness to the healthcare delivery system from a hospital standpoint. We happen to have uh, Dwayne Donner, who is the CEO of the California Hospital Association, is actually has been very involved with developing um, the account, a response and uh, towards the Accountable Care Act, uh, what impact that would have in California. So we're very proactively working with both the state and federal legislature in um, just advocating on behalf of hospitals, recognizing it's a very difficult um, situation, even amongst hospitals. You know, the, the county hospitals have different issues than public hospitals, or excuse me, the county hospitals versus the UC systems versus private hospitals versus not-for-profit hospitals. So trying to get a single voice to deal with Sacramento and Washington is really important. And we've been successful in doing that. Um, Jim, in your hospital, uh, do you have, um, are you, are you also immersed into the alternative, what people would call the alternative, uh, uh, medicines as well, or is it mainly like a lot of hospitals are, which is the, the scientific medically based? Right, right now it's pretty traditional, scientifically medical based. Uh, we are developing what's called a champion center which is um, a post-traumatic, it deals with post, the effects of post-traumatic stress for police, fire, and military. That will have a holistic approach to it with meditation and uh, acupuncture and those types of things. We're also looking at developing with the Radiation Oncology Center. Um, part of that process is a wellness center that we're looking at. So. Hospitals are evolving into that, um, and and we are currently. That's fa- that's fabulous. That's really exciting to hear that. <laughs> I was excited because then it's sort of it's not really alternative, is it? It's it's really the holistic uh, it's approach. More holistic, and 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 that needs to be considered um, equally as part of the the scientific approach to. Mm-hmm the healthcare delivery system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We recognize that in the community. Our board recognizes that, which is why we're 
allocating resources to, to develop centers like that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wonderful, wonderful. Congratulations. At some point, it will all just be called medicine. At some point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jim, what, what do you think is uh, or are some public misunderstandings of what goes on in a hospital? You know, people, I hear people all the time talk about it, mainly when they get their bill is, is when <laughs> things come up. And, and they start looking at a bill and they say $10 for a Band-Aid. And well, the then they get a little crazy. Yes. So what are some the of the things that you think people have a misunderstanding about or that you would like to correct in the eyes and ears and minds of the community? Well, I would like the misunderstanding is the fact that people complain that an aspirin costs $250. I'd like to correct that misperception. Everybody should accept paying $250 for an aspirin. Uh. Um, <laughs> <laughs> actually, Glenn... You know, that is, and that's really not a misperception. That's a fact. Hospital charges are nuts. I mean, they're absolutely crazy. Mm -hmm. And there's no, you can't justify them. Uh, they are developed from, or they're a result of the delivery, current delivery system. And it, it goes back to cost shifting. When I gave you that example of that person that came into our emergency department with a plastic anemia, and, we, and just for the blood products alone, we spent $50,000. I personally signed a check to Tri-County's Blood Bank at that time for $50,000, and we, we pay our bills. And that was a bill that showed up to take care of this patient. We had zero money coming in to pay the cost of that. And, and not only to pay the cost of the nursing care that he received for seven days. Um, so what happens is we end up taking a look at our private payers, uh, the people that are insured, and you go after the insurance companies and raise rates to the insurance companies oh. at a point where you, you get paid for some part of that, those losses. And that's, that's called cost shifting. That has gone on for 30 years, mm. and which is why you end up with um, an aspirin costing $250. And it, it makes no sense. In fact, I was up in Sacramento three weeks ago, and um, actually uh, one of our goals at the California Hospital Association is to actually come up with a reasonable pricing uh, policy to deal with this very, very sensitive and valid issue. Um, it's a complicated issue, uh, and it needs to get addressed, and we are working towards doing that. Some of the other things and misperceptions is that healthcare, you know, should be less expensive. One of the things that drives me nuts as a CEO is in 1995, the state of California passed Senate Bill 1953, which is the seismic retrofit bill. That, that bill just alone, it's an unfunded state mandate that required all hospitals, all 474 hospitals in the state of California to comply with very rigid seismic um, standards. Uh, at that time, in 1995, it was estimated that full compliance with Senate Bill 1953 would cost the, all, the 474 hospitals in California $120 billion. Oh, wow. That, that now, that $120 billion is spread over 474 
acute hospitals in the state of California. The $120 billion was larger than the annual state budget. The state budget right now is about 80 or 90 billion. And so they, the state legislature, really just dropped in every CEO's lap a $120 billion charge that we had to deal with. And I don't have a problem with meeting seismic standards, but if the state is going to pass legislation like that, they ought to fund it in some way um, because it just devastated. And one of your earlier questions, what have we done to proactively uh, deal with um, being engaged with Sacramento, my response to that was, I, my response actually in one of the meetings with the California Hospital Association in 1995 or 98 was to all the hospital CEOs in the state buy their own ticket to Sacramento, walk into the legislature, and tell them we're not doing it, and then go home. Um, and, you know, unless you fund it. And unfortunately, what's happened, not unfortunately, but there's been a lot of, you know, we've got a brand new hospital building that's being paid for by the taxpayers. Cottage, has put, but in Santa Barbara County alone, we have spent probably $1.25 billion complying with this seismic requirement. Those costs directly impact the cost of healthcare in, in this state and in this county and in this country. And those kinds of things, um, you know, somebody has to pay for those. This is not a, uh, you know, uh, a market where we can continue to absorb those costs. Uh, but we're in an environment right now where, and we should, Anybody that comes into our doors, we need to take care of. Um, but it's not like, you know, the federal or the state government want to go buy a car. They'll go to General Motors and pay for the car, pay the cost of the car. You know, we're not even getting right now the cost of the uh, care that we're providing, covering that from some of the federal programs. Medi-Cal or Medicare is decreasing their reimbursement because of the state and federal deficit. Mm. It's just easy to cut, cut, cut. And at some point, the whole system's going to implode has to make changes, as you said before. Uh, there are a few other things that people get concerned about. People have a fear of hospitals. Uh, they hear about infections that you can mm. get. You go into the hospital, and then you get an infection from the hospital. And, of course, tell us how a hospital deals with that concept. You know, and that, that actually, that's the other argument that I had with the California Hospital Association. I think that somebody uh, ran an ad and, you know, it had this mortuary music playing. <laughs> and all it did was had statistics show up of how many people are being killed um, in hospitals. And, you know, it's not that everybody makes mistakes, but on the whole, on the whole, I think infections in hospitals are, are very low. We, there, there's obvious room for improvement. Some of the things that we've done to deal with that is, you know, we terminally clean every room after a patient is in there. Some of the federal uh, so terminally cleaning is they go in, they take all the drapes out, they take the bed coverings, replace them, completely clean the, clean the building. But, you know, that, that has a cost associated with it. Um, the federal government and state government want us to test for some organisms like methicillin-resistant staph aureus, they commonly called MRSA. Um, so now we're dealing with people get cultured with this, but they're not infectious. 
so we have a nasal swab of someone with this organism. You know, do you put them in isolation? Do you not? Uh, so th there's a lot going on with, in this area, but hand washing is proven to be one of the simplest things to do to prevent infections, um, which there's a huge hand washing program going around, cleaning, um, you know, terminally cleaning rooms and equipment and so on and so forth. Um, also, there's some federal regulations, which actually are positive, because they're scientifically based about um, dropping infection rates with how they're putting central lines in, making physicians gown, mask, glove, to put a central line in. They've, they've dramatically uh, reduced the number of central line infections because of these policies and procedures. And I, I don't mean to, to harp that every federal regulation is bad. I think the ones that are really scientifically based Many of the things that you see in, um, in ORs about when, when patients that are going to surgery get an antibiotic, um, those, those have had real positive changes because they're scientifically based. Um, and, and those are real, have had positive impact on, on the delivery of care. But I would say all in all, hospitals are very safe. I really don't have any um, major paranoia about being admitted to any hospital. Um, but we are in an environment where things can happen, uh, infections are there, and you try and just minimize those. There are also, there's always the rumor or the story that the surgeon left the sponge in or the, the hemostat <laughs> or something like that. You know, we, we hear all of these stories and they think that uh, no big deal, there'll be a doctor cover up, nothing will happen. But you and I know we have many committees and reviews of everything that goes on, and things don't get past us. They go to many different people looking at it from different points of view. Do you want to speak on that for a moment? Yeah, it's something, again, there, there's, there's called peer review that goes on in every hospital, and it's really mandated. And it's a time where if you're really going to make substantial changes in processes that need to be changed. Physicians need to be in a room with hospital staff to take a look if, if there is a, an event that occurs, to step back and scientifically just dissect it. And, you know, why did this happen? How did it happen? What failures did we have? Um, how do we prevent this from happening again? You know, mistakes will happen, and you always have to be understanding of that, but you should never have the same mistake happening over and over and over, and that's a failure in administration, a failure in the medical staff. And so we take a very strong, and I think all hospitals in the country are like this, when issues happen, um, you take a look at what broke down in the system and correct it. But it's taken very seriously. Uh, some physicians' licenses are jeopardized by these types of things happening. So, um, and, and it's more of a collaborative effort with the hospital, the nurses, and the doctors, all really focusing on what is in the best interest of the patient uh, when they're in our in our care and under our care? And then there's joint commission. Joint commission is an outside agency that comes in. Both the state and the federal government come in every three years and reviews the policies, procedures, operations. They send physicians in, independent physicians, to come in to take a look um, at how your op your facility is running. Um, that's one of the other things that I find kind of interesting is that these these so-called surveys are um, just exponentially growing. We've got now these little sub-surveys of a, uh, a pharmacist from the state will come in to take a look at our medication administration, 
process. We have a survey of our hearing program for the newborns that are born in our um, you know, facility. You've got this uh, joint commission coming in every three years. So they, they go on and on and on, and you kind of wonder, joint commission used to be a consolidated survey that happened every three years. Now it seems like we have people walking through our, our facility all the time, and I, I personally think that they should just consolidate it all and save some money from an administrative standpoint on the state. Um, send the regulations out, make sure we're complying, survey us every three years. Uh, or more frequently, they're unannounced surveys, so no one knows when they're coming, and that's the best way they should do. Um, and so there, there's a lot of oversight and regulations that go on. Hmm. Fantastic. Uh, listen, you know, I always ask my guests to uh, give a health tip. Most of the people I've had were healers, uh, physicians and acupuncturists and homeopathic doctors, uh, but I've never had a hospital administrator. And by the way, this is, uh, we're so grateful for you coming on. It's very rare that we get to talk to a hospital administrator, I think. We hear from all sorts of healers many times, but this is kind of rare. Do you have a health tip based on uh, your experiences and wisdom that you could share with us? Um, well, you know, if personally, I, I, I think it's just moderation. Everything... <laughs> You know, I, you know I, I've always, I've always argued, not I me, mean, I've always dealt with weight. Um, you know, ping pong ball, typical guy that goes up, goes down, you know, getting out of myself, then I start losing weight. But, you know, volume in, uh, it's a volume control. You know, there's nothing that, that we, that is that harmful to us, I think, that uh, as long as they're in small portions, you know, whether it's wine, whether it's, you know, hamburgers or you know, fish, you just need everything in moderation. And I think that if you can do that and maintain your BMI at an acceptable range, you should be okay. Mm. So there you go. I like that. I heard <laughs> once that uh, you should take everything in moderation, including moderation. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe every once in a while, no, but I like that. Uh, is there anything in this opportunity that you would like to say to us to teach us a little more about hospitals before we end today's uh, wonderful conversation? Um, no, I think the other issue that's out there that people need to be a little bit aware of is the integration that needs to go on with physicians and hospitals, and I'm speaking specifically in, in California. Um, there's, the other misperception is, Glenn, and you dealt with this when you were in our emergency department, that everyone thinks that the emergency room physicians or the anesthesiologist are hospital employees. In the state of California, it's illegal to for hospitals to hire doctors. And that's a real problem for people that come into emergency rooms because you'll get a bill from the hospital for our, our services, and then they get a bill from the professional, from the physicians for their professional services. Hmm. And unfortunately, one of the biggest issues that's out there is that we have no control over the emergency room physicians that we've hired to operate and staff our emergency department, what contracts they they can uh, sign. And so you, you do have situations throughout the state of California that's very frustrating for patients that the hospital may be contracted, for example, let's say Blue Cross, but the physicians may not. 
And so you come into an emergency department, the hospital is under your coverage, but the physicians aren't. And then, then the patients get upset, rightfully so. Um, and we are also working, the California Hospital Association is working on trying to allow us to bill for physicians, at least, that are hospital-based, like the anesthesiologist, like the ER physicians, um, you know, pathologists. And, you know, really, if you get admitted to a hospital in California, you get admitted through the ER, you go have surgery, you have some malignancy taken out or a tumor taken out of you, and you get to the, um, the, the floor in med surge, you're going to get a bill from the hospital for all those services, but then you're going to get a bill from an ER doctor, you're going to get a bill from a general surgeon, you're going to get a bill from an anesthesiologist, you're going to get a bill from a pathologist, and most likely you're going to get a bill from the radiologist. And so, you know, that, that's a dysfunctional system. And, you know, <laughs> we all need to kind of focus. Christina, don't laugh. The whole system is dysfunctional right now. You, you, you know, <laughs> you Jim, know, have to... I have to tell you, I have my, my I am from Canada, and my whole family lives in Canada, and I hear them complain in Canada about, you know, all these little bills, uh, the one bill that comes from the government <laughs> after a hospital stay or something. And I do have a nephew who is also a specialist in Canada. And to hear that, you know, already you're traumatized to a certain point when you have to go into a hospital and, you know, you're, you're needing the urgent care and everything. And then after you leave the hospital, the post-trauma is all these bills that are coming in here, you know. Well, not only, yes, not only the bills from the hospital, but then you're trying to make sense about all these hospital-based physicians. But then your bill from the hospital shows you're getting charged $250 for an aspirin. For an aspirin. You know, it just, and anybody, I mean, I'm being facetious about that. But, you know, the charges don't reflect the cost of providing the care. Yes. Because of cost shifting, the whole system really needs to be have a wholesale. You know, I think the the hard drive needs to get reset mm-hmm. on the healthcare delivery system in the United States. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, good things also happen in hospitals. Lives are saved, limbs mm-hmm. are saved, sight is saved, Remarkable children are birthed. Stuff. Many good things oh, happen yes. in, in hospitals. Yeah, and Jim, we, if I mean, uh, one last yeah. question, if we have a moment. Yeah. Somebody has a problem. At, uh, with the hospital, do they contact the hospital administrator? Who do they contact? There's usually individuals that uh, will deal with that, our quality assurance risk management departments um, and or hospital administration. All They could contact anybody in the hospital because most hospitals have policies, as we do, that anybody that has either a complaint or a commendation, actually we take those down and log those uh, and, and research the ones that we need to. Mm. One thing about that, Glenn, and I think you were involved in this case about the good things that happen in hospitals. Here you have early on in the technology that goes on in this country is remarkable, but we've had, they've had these clot-busting drugs. And uh, we were one of the first hospitals in the state working with our emergency department physicians to assess patients that come in with a stroke. The, the physicians would assess them. They'd get a neurologist. They'd get an MRI. And if the, can't, if the individual was eligible for these clot-busting drugs, uh, the physician would administer them. One of the first patients that we dealt with, I, I don't know if it was you, Glenn, or uh, it was about that time when you were at the hospital, but uh, this patient came in completely paralyzed with a stroke. They went through the protocols, 
gave the drug to the patient, and two days later, three days later, they walked out of the hospital. Hmm. Um, there is remarkable things that are going on uh, with technology, new medications, and actually the provision of care that can't go under understated. And I think that, unfortunately, hospitals um, have not championed the good things that go on enough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Actually, in one of our uh, earlier uh, conversations here, we had Dr. Philip Enti, the neurologist, come on and speak, and okay. he was the one that uh, was bringing that clot-busting uh, medication to the community and to the area. Yeah, Phil, Phil Barry, I think Phil Barry Coughlin, the ER docs, and they all set up the protocols, uh, and it was it was amazing. To, I, I remember how excited the physicians were. Uh, I think I was talking to Phil, and he said that lady just walked out of the hospital after being completely paralyzed. So wow. it's amazing stuff. And that goes to the benefit of being in a small town. Mm -hmm. you know, someone that gets paralyzed, and get to the hospital in five minutes, the quicker you give those medications and assess it. Uh, so it's, it's good stuff. Jim, do you have another minute? Yeah. I want to ask you, somebody moves into a new community. Do you think do you think it's a good idea that they go to the hospital when they're feeling well and introduce themselves, look at the emergency department, meet the administrator, meet some people, or just wait until they come in through a 911 system? You know, it's probably not a bad idea. Um, I, I think it's, you know, Glenn, that, that's one of the things. It's very difficult to determine the quality of a physician. Mm. Uh, or a hospital, a, a lay person. Um, you know, some of the some of the nicest physicians uh, that you would run into or talk to have some of the best bedside manners may may be the physicians with the least clinical skills, and some of the physicians with the the worst bedside manners may be the greatest clinicians. And so, but people's perception mm -hmm. is so much on you know, do I like this doctor, which really has nothing to do with, doesn't translate into clinical competency. Um, and so, you know, I, I don't know, Glenn. Um, you just have to kind of keep your ears to the tracks and make sure that you're uh, getting taken care of. And I don't know if there is a place that you can go to. And I've, I'm sure, Glenn, you and I have both been at parties where they keep talking about how wonderful this doctor is. And we sit there and, you know, probably neither one of us would ever go to the person. Um, but, you know, the perception, the perception is that they're such a nice person and they've got to be a good doctor. And so, you know, when you're at a cocktail party or something and they're talking about what a great doctor someone is, you know, I, it's, to me it's like a grain of salt. I, will, I would take a recommendation from another doctor, a doctor I respect. In fact, I, I think I told you before we started the program, Barbara ended up uh, – breaking her foot, my wife, and, uh, you know, we drove back to Lompoc because I know the radiologist, I know the orthopedic surgeon, I know that the person he's going to refer me to, uh, well, we ended up being referred out to Santa Barbara to a foot-ankle specialist, and I know the person he's going to refer me to is someone that is very competent, and, um, you know, I, I'm just comfortable in this environment that we're going to get good care. Mm -hmm. I am grateful to my very special guest and friend, Jim Raggio, uh, hospital administrator, CEO of Lompoc Valley Community Hospital, for sharing his wisdom and expertise with us. Uh, I look forward to meeting with all of you again and Christina in another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy as we search for
optimal health. And until we see each other again, I wish you all optimal health. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Thanks, Christina. Thank you so much, Jim. It's been an honor to have you on here and also to help us uh, to give us laymen out here an understanding of of what you have to deal with and and what really is behind the scenes that are going on in the hospital to make us feel more comfortable about actually stepping in and what to expect when we're there, you know, receiving the care that we need at at that moment, at that present moment. And also what to expect after. So it's not, you know, <laughs> a bit yeah. of a shock. <laughs> <laughs> I understand. Thank you so much. You're it's welcome. been a pleasure. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.